Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in to WUHS 96.9 for the West Union High School Performing Arts Department production of The War of the Worlds Radio Drama. We hope that you enjoy this presentation tonight as we destroy the world before your very ears. <laughs> but anyway, this radio broadcast was originally aired in 1938 and caused mass hysteria across the country, even resulting in several suicides when people actually believed that Martians were invading the Earth. So for those of you in the listening audience, please remember that the following events are fictional. But without further delay... We will begin our presentation of the War of the Worlds radio drama. Have a happy Halloween. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations present Orson Wales and the Mercury Theater on the air in the War of the Worlds by H.G. Wales. Ladies and gentlemen, the director of the Mercury Theater and star of these broadcasts, Orson Welles. We know now that in early years of the 20th century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. People went to and fro over the earth, serene in the assurance of their own dominion over this small spitting fragment of solar driftwood. Yet across an immense ethereal gulf, Intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the thirteenth year of the twentieth century came the great disillusionment. It was near the end of October. Business was better. The war scare was over. More men were back at work. Sales were picking up. On this particular evening, October 30th, the Crosley Service estimated that 32 million people were listening in on radios. For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low-pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. Maximum temperature, 66. Minimum, 48. This weather report comes to you from the Government Weather Bureau. We now take you to the Meridian Room in the Hotel Park Plaza in downtown New York, where you'll be entertained by the music of Ramon Riquello and his orchestra. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. From the Meridian Room in the Park Plaza in New York City, we bring you the music of Ramon Riquello and his orchestra with a touch of the Spanish. Ramon Riquello leads off with La Cumpercita. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt our program of dance music to bring you a special bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News. At 20 minutes before 8 central time, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving towards the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the Observatory of Cincinnati confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, 
like a jet of blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. We now return you to the music of Ramon Raqueo, playing for you in the Meridian Room of the Park Plaza Hotel, situated in downtown New York. Now a tune that never loses flavor, the ever-popular stardust, Ramon Raqueo and his orchestra. Ladies and gentlemen, following on the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, the Government Meteorological Bureau has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with noted astronomer Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on the event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Cincinnati Observatory at Cincinnati, Ohio. We return you, until then, to the music of Ramon Raqueo and his orchestra. We are now ready to take you to the Cincinnati Observatory at Cincinnati where Carl Phillips, a reporter, will interview Professor Richard Pearson, famous astronomer. We take you now to Cincinnati, Ohio. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the Observatory at Cincinnati. I am standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of this huge telescope. The ticking sound you hear is the vibration of the clockwork. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform, peering through a giant lens. I ask you to be patient, ladies and gentlemen, during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides his ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by telephone or other communications. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Uh, Professor, may I begin our questions? At any time, Mr. Phillips. Professor, would you please tell our radio audience exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Well, um, nothing unusual at the moment, Mr. Phillips. Uh, a red disk swimming in a blue sea. A transverse stripes across the disk, uh, quite distinct now because Mars happens to be the point nearest the Earth, in opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? <laughs> Not canals, I can assure you, Mr. Phillips. Although that's the, the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. <laughs> but, but from a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. When you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I'd say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? Mr. Phillips, I cannot account for it. By the way, Professor, for the benefit of our listeners, how far is Mars from Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. Well, that seems a safe enough distance. Thank you. Just a moment. Ladies and gentlemen, someone has just handed Professor Pearson a message. 
While he reads it, let me remind you that we are speaking to you from the observatory in Cincinnati, Ohio, where we are interviewing the world-famous astronomer, Professor Pearson. One moment, please. Professor Pearson has just passed me a message which he has just received. Uh, Professor, may I read the message to our listening audience? Oh, certainly, Mr. Phillips. Ladies and gentlemen, I shall read to you a wire just to Professor Pearson from Dr. Gray at the National History Museum, New York. 9.15 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Seismograph registered shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 75 miles of Cincinnati. Please investigate. Signed, Lloyd Gray, Chief of Astronomical Division. Professor Pearson, could this occurrence possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? Hardly, Mr. Phillips. Uh, this is probably a, a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is, is merely a coincidence. However, uh, we shall conduct a search uh, as soon as daylight permits. Thank you, Professor. Ladies and gentlemen, for the past ten minutes, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at Cincinnati, bringing you a special interview with Professor Pearson, noted astronomer. This is Carl Phillips speaking. We are returning you now to our New York studio. Ladies and gentlemen, here is the latest bulletin from the Intercontinental Radio News, Toronto, Canada. Professor Morse of McGill University reports observing a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 p.m. and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This confirms earlier reports received from American observatories. Now, nearer home comes a special announcement from Portsmouth, Ohio. It is reported that at 8.50 p.m., a huge, flaming object believed to be a meteorite fell on a farm in the neighborhood of West Union, Ohio, 30 miles from Portsmouth. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Columbus. We have dispatched a special mobile unit to the scene, and we'll have our commentator, Carl Phillips, give you a word description as soon as he can reach there from Cincinnati. In the meantime, we take you to the Hotel Martinet in Brooklyn, where Bobby Millett and his orchestra are offering a program of dance music. We take you now to West Union, Ohio. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Carl Phillips again at the Groom's Farm, West Union, Ohio. Professor Pearson and myself made the 55 miles from Cincinnati on helicopter. Well, I, uh, I hardly know where to begin to paint for you the word picture of the strange scene before my eyes. Like something out of a modern Arabian night. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess, I guess that's it. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. Directly in front of me half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree and must have struck on its way down. What I can see is the, uh, the object doesn't look very much like a meteor, at least not the meteors I've seen. It seems more like a huge cylinder and it's a diameter of... What would you say, Professor Pearson? What's that? What would you say? What is the diameter? Well, uh, about 30 yards. About 30 yards? The metal in the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish-white. Curious spectators now are pressing close to the object in spite of the effort of police to keep them back. I'm getting in front of my line of vision. Would you mind standing on one side, please? One side, please. There, one side. 
while the policemen are pushing the crowd back, here's Mr. Grooms, owner of the farm here. We have some interesting facts to add. Mr. Grooms, would you please tell the radio audience as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? Step closer, please. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mr. Grooms. Well, I was listening to the radio. Closer and louder, please. Pardon me. Louder, please. Closer. Yes, sir. Well, while I was listening to the radio, kind of drowsing, the professor fella was talking about mobs. So I was half dozen and half... Yes, yes, Mr. Grooms. Then what happened? As I was saying, I was listening to the radio and kind of halfway. Yes, Mr. Grooms, and then you saw something. No, first off, I heard something. And what did you hear? A hissing sound, like a kind of like a 4th of July rocket. Then what? Turned my head out the window, and would have swore I was sleeping and dreaming or something. Yes? I seen a kind of greenish streak, and then, zingo, something smacked the ground. Knocked me clear out of my chair. Well, were you frightened, Mr. Grooms? Well, I, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I was kind of real. Well, thank you, Mr. Grooms. Thank you. Want me to tell you some more? No, that's quite all right. It's plenty. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard from Mr. Grooms, owner of the farm where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the uh, the background of this, this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us. Police are trying to rope off the roadway leading to the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Cars, headlights, throw an enormous spot on the pit where the object's half buried. Some of the more daring souls are now venturing near the edge. Their silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. One man wants to test the thing. He's having an argument with the policeman. The policeman wins. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's something I haven't mentioned to you in all of this excitement, but now it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've already caught it on your radio. Listen. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to be coming from inside the object. I'll move the microphone nearer. Now we're not more than 25 feet away. Can you hear it now? Oh, Professor Pearson. Yes, Can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Um, but possibly the unequal cooling of its surface? I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I, 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 honestly, I don't know what to think. The metal casing is definitely uh, extraterrestrial. Not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite, but, but this thing is smooth and, as you can see, of cylindrical shape. Just a minute. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. The end of the thing is beginning to flake up. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw. This thing must be hollow. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute. Something's crawling out of the hollow top. Someone or, or something. I can see peering out of that black hole. Two luminous discs. Are the eyes? It might be a face. It might be... Oh, oh my, my God! Good heavens! Something's wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one. And another! They look like tentacles to me. They're... I can see the thing's body. It's large. Large as a bear. And it glistens like wet leather. But the face, it... Ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it. Eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped with a saliva dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate. The master, whatever it is, can hardly move. It seems weighed down by 
possibly gravity or something. The thing's raising up. The crowd falls back now. They've seen plenty. It's the most extraordinary experience. I can't find words. I'll pull this microphone with me as I talk. I'll have to stop the description until I can take a new position. Hold on, will you please? I'll be back right in a minute. We are bringing you an eyewitness account of what's happening on the Groom's Farm, West Union, Ohio. We now return you to Carl Phillips at West Union. Ladies and gentlemen, my on? Ladies and gentlemen, here I am, back of a stone wall that adjoins Mr. Groom's garden. From here, I got a sweep of the whole scene. I'll give you every detail as long as I can talk, as long as I can see. More state police have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit, about 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. The captain is conferring with someone. We can't, can't quite see who it is. Oh yes, I believe it's Professor Pearson. Yes, it is. Now they parted. The professor moves around one side, studying the object. While the captain and its two policemen advance with something in their hands. I can see it now. It's a white handkerchief tied to a pole. A flag of truce. If those creatures knew what this means, what anything means. Wait, something's happening. A hump shape is rising out of the pit. <clears throat> I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a dead flame screaming from the mirror. At least right at these dancing men. It strikes them head on. Good lord, they're turning into flame. Now the whole field is caught fire. The woods, the cars, the gas tanks of automobiles are spreading everywhere. Ladies and gentlemen, due to circumstances beyond our control, we are unable to continue the broadcast from West Union. Evidently, there's some difficulty with our field transmission. However, we will return to that point at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, we have a late bulletin from San Diego, California. Professor Eidenkolfer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. We now continue with our piano interlude. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been handed a message that came in from West Union by telephone. Just a moment. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of West Union. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Brigadier General Montgomery Smith, commander of the state militia at Hillsborough, Ohio. I have been requested by the governor of Ohio to place the counties of Adams and Brown as far west as Fayetteville and east of Blue Creek under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of state militia are proceeding from Hillsborough to West Union and will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to General Montgomery Smith commanding the state militia at Hillsborough. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at West Union are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back into their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. 
Combined fire departments of Adams County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with our mobile unit at West Union, but we hope to be able to return you there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, we take you... Just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near West Union, where he's established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson, brought to you by Direct Wire. Professor Pearson? Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at West Union, I can give you no authoritative information either as to their nature, their, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. I, for want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It is my guess that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity. This intense heat they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Ladies and gentlemen, here is a bulletin from Seaman, Ohio. It is a brief statement informing us that the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in the Adams County Regional Medical Center. Now here's another bulletin from Washington, D.C. Office of the Director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the state militia, stationed outside West Union, Ohio. Here's a bulletin from State Police, Portsmouth. The fires at West Union and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Mr. Harry McDonald, Vice President in Charge of Operations. We have received a request from the militia at Hillsborough to place at their disposal our entire broadcasting facilities. In view of the gravity of the situation, and believing that radio has the responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the state militia at Hillsborough. We take you now to the field headquarters of the State Militia near West Union, Ohio. This is Captain Lanson of the Signal Corps, attached to the State Militia, now engaged in military operations in the vicinity of West Union. Situation arising from the reported presence of certain individuals of unidentified nature is now under complete control. The cylindrical object which lies in a pit directly below our position is surrounded on all sides by eight battalions of infantry, with all heavy field pieces but adequately armed with rifles and machine guns. All cause for alarm, if such ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, don't even venture to poke their heads above the pit. I could see their hiding place plainly in the glare of the searchlights here. With all their reported resources, these creatures can scarcely stand up against heavy machine gun fire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. I can make out their khaki uniforms crossing back and forth in front of the lights. It looks almost like a real war. There appears to be some slight smoke in the woods bordering Brush Creek. Probably fire started by campers. Well, we ought to see some action soon. One of the companies is deploying on the left flank. A quick thrust and it will all be over. Wait, now wait a minute! I see something on top of the cylinder! No, it's nothing but a shadow. Now the troops on the edge of the groom's farm. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. Wait! That wasn't a shadow. It's something moving! Solid metal, kind of, kind of shield-like. A fair raising up out of the cylinder. It's going, it's going higher! And higher! It's standing on legs! Actually rearing up on a sort of metal framework! Now it's reaching above the trees, 
and the searchlights are on it! Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Ohio farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from the planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at West Union has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by any army in modern times. 7,000 men armed with rifles and machine guns pitted against the single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars. 120 known survivors, the rest strewn over the battlefield from West Union to Athens, crushed and trampled to death under the metal feet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the southern Ohio section and has effectively cut the state in half. Communication lines are down from Ohio to West Virginia. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swallowed Dayton, Cleveland, and Detroit. It is estimated to twice their normal population. At this time, martial law prevails throughout Ohio. We take you now to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concerns of our government, in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined in a comparatively small area, and we may keep our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington. Bulletins too numerous to read are piling up in the studio here. We are informed the central portion of Ohio is blacked out from radio communication due to the effect of the heat ray upon power lines and electrical equipment. Here is a special bulletin from New York. Cables were received from English, French, and German scientific bodies offering assistance. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on planet Mars. Majority voice opinion, the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. Attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Cincinnati, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in recent battle. Langham Field, Virginia, scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving northwards towards Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. Heat ray not in use. Although advancing at express train speed, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to uproot power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. Here is a bulletin from Basking Ridge, New Jersey. Coon hunters have stumbled on a second cylinder similar to the first embedded in the Great Swamp, 20 miles south of Morristown. Army field pieces are proceeding from Newark to blow up second invading unit before cylinder can be opened and the fighting machine rigged. They are taking up position in the foothills of Wachung Mountains. Another bulletin from Langham Field, Virginia. Scouting planes report enemy machines, now three in number, increasing speed northward, kicking over houses and trees in their evident haste to form a conjunction with their allies south of Morristown. Machines also sighted by telephone operator east of Middlesex within 10 miles of plane field.
Here's a bulletin from Winston Field, Long Island. Fleet of army bombers carrying heavy explosives flying north in pursuit of enemy. Scouting planes act as guides. They keep speeding enemy in sight. Just a moment, please. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've run special wires to the artillery line in adjacent villages to give you direct reports in the zone of the advancing enemy. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery located in the Wachung Mountains. Range 32 meters. 32 meters. Projection 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire. 140 yards to the right, sir. Shift range 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire. We got the tripod of one of them. They've stopped. The others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. Shift 30 meters. 30 meters! Projection. 27 degrees. 27 degrees! Fire! Sir, letting off the smoke. What is it? Black smoke, sir. Moving this way. Lying close to the ground. It's moving fast. Put on the gas mask, gentlemen. Ready fire! 21 meters! 24 meters! Projection. 24 degrees! 24 degrees! Fire! Army bombing plane B843 off Bayonne, New Jersey. Lieutenant Voigt commanding eight bombers. Reporting to Commander Fairfox, Langham Field. This is Vought reporting to Commander Fairfox, Langham Field. Enemy tripod machines now in sight. Re reinforced by three machines from Morristown Cylinder. Six altogether. One machine already crippled. It's believed hit by shell from Army Gun in Witcham Mountains. Gun now appears silent. Heavy black fog hanging close to the earth. Of extreme density. Nature unknown. No sight of heat ray. Enemy now turns east. Crossing Pasig River into Jersey Marshes. Another straddles the Pulaski Skyway. Evident object is now New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together now, and we're ready to attack. Plane circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be over the first 800 yards, 600 yards, 400, 200. There they go! The giant arm raised! Green flash! They're spraying us with flames! 10,000 feet! Engines are giving out! No chance to release bombs! One thing! Drop on them! Planes and all! We're diving on the first one! Now eight engines gone! Eight! New Jersey, calling Langham Field. This is Bay in New Jersey, calling Langham Field. Come in, please! This is Langham Field, go ahead. Eight army bombers in engagement with enemy tripod machines over Jersey Flats. Engines incapacitated by heat ray. All crashed. One enemy machine destroyed. Enemy now discharging a heavy black smoke in direction of... This is Newark, New Jersey. This is Newark, New Jersey. Warning, poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes. Reaches South Street. Gas masks useless. Urges population to move into open spaces. Automobiles use routes 7, 23, 24. Avoid congested areas. Smoke now spreading over Raymond Boulevard. 2X2L, call CQ! 2X2L, call CQ! 2X2L, call an 8X3R! Come in, please! This is 8X3R, coming back to 2X2L. How's reception? How's reception? Okay, please! Where are you, 8X3R? What's the matter? Where are you? 
I'm speaking from the roof of the broadcasting building, New York City. The bells you hear are ringing to warn the people to evacuate the city as the Martians approach. Estimated in the last two hours, three million people have moved out along the roads to the north. Hutchinson River Parkway still kept open for motor traffic. Avoid bridges to Long Island. They are hopelessly jammed. All communication with Jersey Shore closed ten minutes ago. No more defenses. Our army wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. People are holding service below us in the cathedral. Now I look down the arbor. All manner of boats overloaded with fleeing population pulling out from the docks. Streets are all jammed. Noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in city. Wait a minute. Enemy now in sight above the palisades. Five. Five great machines. First one is crossing river. I can see it from here. Waiting Hudson River like a man wading through a brook. A bulletin's handed me. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be timed and spaced. Now the first machine reaches the shore. He stands watching, looking over the city. His steel, callish head is even with the skyscrapers. He waits for the others. They rise like a line of new towers on the city's west side. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke, drifting over the city. People are in the streets see it now. They're running towards the East River. Thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. Now the smoke's crossing 6th Avenue. 5th Avenue! 100 yards away. It's 50 feet. 2X2L calling CQ. 2X2L calling CQ! 2X2L calling CQ! New York! Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? 2X2L! As I set down these notes on paper, I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth. I have been hiding in this empty house near West Union, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life, a life that has no continuity with the present, furtive existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I look down at my blackened hands, my torn shoes, my tattered clothes, and I, I try to connect them with the professor who lives at Cincinnati, who on the night of October 30th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my, my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? In writing down my daily life, I tell myself that I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movement of the stars. But to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. I find moldy bread in the kitchen and an orange not too spoiled to swallow, I keep watch at the window. From time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length there is a hissing sound, 
and suddenly I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam, as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. It's morning. Morning. Sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas has lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm has passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here and there, a wrecked car, baggage overturned, a, a, a blackened skeleton. I push on west. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them. And I keep a careful watch. I have seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I am ready to fling myself flat on the earth. I come to a chestnut tree. October chestnuts are ripe. I fill my pockets, for I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature, a small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me, and I believe at that moment the animal and I share the same emotion, the joy of finding another living being. I push on north. I find dead cows in a brackish field, beyond the charred ruins of a dairy. The silo remains standing guard over the wasteland, like a lighthouse deserted by the sea. Astride the silo perches a weathercock, and the arrow points north. Next day, I came to a city, vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off, as if a giant hand sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his hand. I reached the outskirts. I had found Covington undemolished, but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it, and it rose up and became a man. A man armed with a large knife. Stop. Where did you come from? Well, um... I uh, come from, oh, from many places, but, but a long time ago from Cincinnati. Cincinnati, huh? That's only a few miles away from here. Yes. Cincinnati. <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country. All this end of town down the river. There's only food for one. Which way are you going? Well, uh, I, I don't really know. I guess I'm just looking for, for people. What is that? Did you hear something just then? Only a bird. I mean, a, a live bird. Get to know that birds have shadows these days. Say, we're in the open here. Let's crawl into this doorway and talk. Hey, say, have you seen any uh, Martians? Nah. They've gone over to Newport. At night, the sky is alive with their lights. Just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago... A couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I believe they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. <laughs> then it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I. Two of us left. They got themselves in salad. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. 
those green stairs. They're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? I, I see that you're in a uniform. Yeah, that's what's left of it. I was in the militia, the National Guard. That's good. Wasn't any war anymore. Then there's war between men and ants. And we're eatable ants. Oh god, I found that out. What will they do with us? I thought it all out. Right now we're caught as we're wanted. The Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. But they won't keep doing that. They'll begin catching us systematic-like, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. But not begun? Not begun, my friend. All that's happened so far is because we don't have enough sense to keep quiet. Bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads and rushing off in crowds. Now instead of our rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nations, civilization, progress. Done. But, but if, if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so. <laughs> and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. What is there left? Life. That's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either. And tamed, fattened, and bred like an axe. What are you going to do? I'm going on. Right under their feet. I got a plan. We men as men are finished. We don't know enough. We gotta learn plenty before we've got a chance. And we've got to live and keep free while we learn. See? I thought it all out. See? Tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that were made for wild beasts. And that's what it's got to be. That's why I watched you. All these little office workers that used to live in these houses. They'd be no good. They haven't any stuff to them. They just used to run off the work. I've seen hundreds of them running wild to catch their commuter train in the morning for fear they'd get canned if they didn't. Running back at night afraid they won't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. And on Sundays, worried about the afterlife. The Martians will be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages, good food, careful breeding, no worries. After a week or so, chasing about the fields on empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? You bet I have. And that isn't all. These Martians will make pets of some of them, train them to do tricks. Who knows? Get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. And some, maybe, they'll train to hunt us. It's impossible. No human being... Yes, they will. There's men who do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me, why... Well, in the meantime, you and I and, and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own the Earth? I've got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers under Cincinnati are miles and miles of them. The main ones are big enough for anybody. Then there's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways... You begin to see, eh? And we'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weak ones. The rubbish out. And you meant me to go? Well, I gave you a chance, didn't I? We, we won't quarrel about that. Go on. And we've got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? And get all the books we can. Science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We'll raid the museums. We'll even spy on the Martians. It may not be so much that we had to learn before. Just imagine this. 
Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays, right and left, and not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, but men. Men who have learned the way how. It may even be in our time. That's your plan? <laughs> you, and me, and a few more of us. We own the world. I see. Say, what's the matter? Where are you going? No, not to your world. Goodbye, stranger. I get it, mate. There's plenty of men that would love to have your part in this. And you're going to be selfish like that. Are you kidding me? After parting with the artilleryman, I came at last to the Purple People Bridge. I crossed that silent stretch, anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Ohio. Cautiously, I left the bridge and made my way up Butler Street. I reached Third Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies, and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I wandered up Pike and Ludlow. I stood alone on Fountain Square. I caught sight of a lean dog running down Vine Street with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. He made a wide circle around me as though he feared that I might prove a fresh competitor. But I left. I walked up Vine in the direction of that strange powder, past silent shop windows displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks, past the Aronoff Theater, silent and dark, past a shooting gallery where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks. Near Duke Energy Convention Center, I noticed models of 2013 sports cars in the showrooms facing the empty streets. From over the top of the Great American Insurance Building, I watched a flock of blackbirds circling in the sky. But I hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine standing somewhere in Washington Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea. I rushed recklessly across 12th Street and into the park. I climbed a small hill above the pond at Grant Street. From there, I could see... Standing in a silent row along the mall, nineteen of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their great steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines, and suddenly my eyes were attracted to the immense flock of blackbirds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground, and there, before my eyes, Stark and silent lay the Martians, with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in the laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the putrefactive and disease bacteria against which their systems were unprepared, slain after all of man's defenses had failed by the humblest thing that God in his wisdom put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. But now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I have conjured up in my mind of life, spreading slowly from this little seedbed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastness of sidereal space. But that is a remote dream. It may be that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve, 
To them, and not to us, is the future ordained, perhaps. Strange it seems, now, to sit in my peaceful study at the university, writing down this last chapter of the record begun <laughs> at a deserted farm in West Union. Strange to see from my window the university spires dim and blue through an April haze. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green, where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the disassembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange when I recall the time when I first saw it. Bright and clean-cut, hard and silent, under the dawn of that last great day. This has been a West Union Performing Arts Department production of The War of the Worlds Radio Drama. Directed by Eli Beadle, with sound effects and editing provided by Brandon Rigdon. Starring, in order of appearance, Tyler Evans as Radio Announcer Number 1 and Captain Lansing. Kirkland Rideout as Orson Wells, Carl Phillips, Gunner, and Operator Number 4. Karma Collins as Radio Announcer Number 3 and Operator Number 1. Juliana Krask as radio announcer number two and operator number two. Eli Beadle as Professor Pearson and radio announcer number five. Cade Miller as Mr. Groom's officer and stranger. Jared Deneau as policeman, Harry McDonald, observer and operator number five. Alex Creamer as Brigadier General Smith and the commander. Mary Hinton as announcer number four and operator number three and Brandon Rigdon as the Secretary of the Interior. We sincerely hope that you enjoyed this presentation of The War of the Worlds Radio Drama, brought to you by the West Union High School Performing Arts Department. Best wishes, Happy Halloween, and have a good evening.